The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks and will talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense. Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. I'm your host, and for the next hour, we'll be talking about all things related to guns, shooting, hunting, and the firearms industry. I'm joined by my co-host, Zev the Wolf Nadler, owner and operator of Firearms Concierge, sort of, and bestdronage.com. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly. Yeah, uh, when Kelly said sort of, I've kind of been morphing out of that as... Uh, some projects here at Macmillan are starting to come to fruition with some really exciting stuff in the next uh, month or so. So kind of ramp that down, and I'm running full speed ahead here. Yeah, but you are a registered instructor and, and do take on clients from time to time and teaching them how to shoot properly and, and uh, safety and that kind of thing. So, Definitely. Yeah, so that's why I said sort of. <laughs> he still is is offering his services, but not so much as in the same manner as he was before. But always glad to have people that are willing to work with people to, to train them. Uh, I think w- there is far too little training going on. Uh, I think that people get a gun and think that, that they're safe. But, you know, the whole part of that is if you don't know how to use it and you're not comfortable with it and not secure in your ability, it, you are not safe. I have a, a new uh, parents who just had a baby and uh, father wants to get a gun and mom's a little nervous about it. And this Sunday I'm going over there at the home usually start at their homes with inert ammo and a couple different types of uh, uh, handguns to show them what what's available with safes and so on so yeah people don't know and I'm, I'm glad that I'm able to bring it to their home and teach them I think that's such a great uh, service too because it's a way for people to immediately one find a, a handgun that they're comfortable with um, figure out how to use it where somebody there can tell them when they've got a uh, comfortable surroundings around them and not worried about, well, am I doing something wrong? Am I in the wrong place? That happens when you go to a, an indoor or even an outdoor range. People are uncomfortable for the first time. So this is a really great place to start. Well, so much for that. I want to talk now about accuracy. Um, you know, McMillan has been synonymous with accuracy since the mid-60s when uh, my family started building, uh, you know, really accurate bench rest guns and pretty much how my father got into the fiberglass stock business. Uh, he really didn't think about this as being a business that would support three generations of the McMillans, but he thought it would give him an edge in being able to sell accurate bench rest rifles if he could manufacture a stock that, you know, took away some of the problems that Wood had. So that's how he got started in this. But our first guest today has, is really known for thinking outside the box and I will be the first to admit that as the you know the president and CEO of McMillan fiberglass stocks I have not been labeled 
as a an outside the box thinker. I I I really work hard at trying to do things as as well as I can, but there's a certain norm to what we've been doing in this business for 40 years, and and I haven't varied too far from it. So I'm really excited to talk to our first guest and how it is that that he has some of these ideas that he employs that are so far from what everybody else is doing. I, I want to know how he came up with them. Um, let me introduce Alex Wheeler. Alex, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, first off, um, you've got a business. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners uh, the name of your business, how they could get in touch with you if they need to. You've got a website, uh, any information for them, social media stuff? Uh, yeah, I've got a website. It's wheeleraccuracy.com. Um, I've got a Facebook under my name, Alex Wheeler. Um, and just anything long-range accuracy, that's what I'm interested in. That's what we do. Um, from Ventrest, F-Class, hunting, long-range hunting rifles. Um, and everything is done in-house, so I can control the quality. And uh, I think we're putting out, or I should say I am the only one, I think I'm putting out uh, the best that I can. Well, you know, that's important, and I think that that's something you and I have in common. It's difficult to put your name on something if you're not absolutely certain that it's as good as it can be. I want to... Uh, to learn a little bit more about you, uh, I'd like for you to share with our listeners a, a little of your history, where you grew up, how you got into shooting, um, what it is that got you to where you are today. And my first question for you be is, how old are you, Alex, if you don't mind saying? Uh, I'm 33. Yeah, young man. You know, I just assumed in, in a lot of our conversations uh, through Facebook and, and email that you were older. But I, I saw your photo and I said, <laughs> no, man, he's a young guy. So l- let's give our listeners a little history so they know how you got all of this talent combined into 33 years. Uh, well, I, I don't think it's anything too unique. Uh, grew up hunting deer. Um, I've always been very interested in anything mechanical not necessarily just guns. Um, I was very interested in drag racing and engines and camshafts and head design, those sort of things. So any type of mechanical mechanism I find very interesting, and I always want to make it better or or pick it apart, see how it works. So um, where a lot of people get into shooting to compete and shoot well, I I did that as well, but... Um, if I have a rifle action, I'm going to tear it down and see how it works and uh, see how I can improve it. So uh, anymore, that is kind of the direction that I'm, I'm headed is the mechanical side of things is what really drives me um, and what really interests me for the most part. Uh, but as far as how I got into it, I'm, I grew up in, was in Michigan. I left in my early 20s. Uh, moved to Florida for a few years. I had family down there. And the local Manatee Range, they had a 1,000-yard line. That's where I first got exposed to interest or competition in general. Um, and it, it came rapid, you know, pretty pretty easily, pretty quickly. Uh, I was able to pick it up and uh, um, shot some F-class, shot some, some long-range Ventrest, and moved to Montana. And I've been here. For about four or five years, and I was lucky enough to shoot at Deep Creek and uh, set a couple of records there, and uh, 
that's how it started. Well, let's not be too modest. Those were national records, right? Well, we were shooting under the Williamsport uh, sanctioning body at that point in time, so the Williamsport Thousand Yard Bend Trust, and they call them world records, uh, but... And they were aggregate. They were six and ten match, so basically you average out your whole year of group size. Um, they were aggregate records, but, uh, you know, there was only really two clubs shooting under those rules, so, yeah, I don't think I agree with the world record thing, but nonetheless, I'm, I was lucky enough to do it. Well, I know, and maybe you can help me out with this. <clears throat> Williamsport has kind of been its own entity for a long time. Uh, I know that... Um, Thousand Yard Bench Rest has been around, I don't know, 15, maybe 20 years. IBS sanctioned some of them. And then there's Williamsport, which is kind of all by itself. It's its own sanctioning body. And everybody refers to it just as Williamsport. Do I have yeah. all I need to know about it? Pretty much. Williamsport is where it started. So they were there before the IBS. Um some of those guys moved out to this part of the country. That's why this club in Montana was formed, and we were shooting with Williamsport. I think this club here started in 97. Um, at some point, and I don't know the dates, the IBS took it up and started sanctioning it as well. Uh, we, this uh, few years ago, our club here joined up with the IBS. <clears throat> uh, Williamsport still prefers to stay Williamsport. I don't know why, but they're hesitant to to join up with the IBS. But but you shoot basically the same course of fire and in pretty similar matches. Yeah, the, the really the the main difference is IBS light gun is five shots, heavy gun is ten shots. Uh, with Williamsport, they shoot ten shots in light gun and heavy gun. That's really the the only real practical difference between the two. Uh, Dick Davis, my uh, general manager for a number of years, uh, set uh, a record, and I think it was in IBS, and I don't know which whether it was light gun or, or heavy gun, but he, but he held a national or world record for uh, quite a while. And in in thousand yard bench rest during the you know the early to late two thousands, quite a while could have been as long as a month. Because yeah, right. when you first establish <laughs> records, it seems like they fall really fast. But yeah, uh, yeah, right. he he held some sort of world record. Don't recall what it was, but we've got the the uh, target here in in our shop. Dick's now passed away, but uh, he was basically the only connection that McMillan's had with uh, thousand yard bench rest. Though we've been making stocks and bench rest stocks and thousand yard bench rest stocks for a number of years. Uh, our Thule MBR has been a real um, popular thousand yard bench rest stock. Right. Yeah. There's uh, and I mean, even still to this day, it's it's hard to beat that basic MBR design. It works very well. I want to talk about accuracy. You know, it's got you use it in the name of your company. I think it really tells people when when they look at your website that you know this is not just another company that puts together rifles. Though you offer out of the box hunting rifles. Um, and I assume that they're extremely accurate out of the box hunting rifles, um, or you wouldn't put your name on them. But yeah, you have some ideas that 
for my 40 years of being in this business, I've never heard anything like it before. So I really want to talk about that because that makes you unique. You've got something, a different different perspective, a a different idea and a concept about what makes guns shoot well. Um, The first thing I want to talk about is timing. You know, everybody has heard the term accurize a Remington or blueprint a Remington where you face the receiver through the the barrel threads and, and, you know, basically through the face of the receiver and lap the locking lug so that everything's square to the bore. Um, sure. You know, in a good receiver these days, custom receiver, you don't need to do any of that because if, if a guy has done his job, all of that should be in the price of the $1,200 custom action. Right, so, you're correct. But you go a little bit further. You do something with the firing pin and the bolt that uh, I've never heard anybody even talk about before. Tell us what that is and and how you come to the conclusion that that makes a difference. Well, there's two kinds of timing. Normally, when we're talking about a bolt action, you have your, your primary extraction timing where the root of the bolt handle is camming to pull the case from the chamber. Uh, and then... What I do that's uh, unique is the, the ignition timing. Um, and basically, most actions are cock-on-open and cock-on-close. So, uh, you know, we'll use like a Remington, for example. When you open that bolt, you're, you're cocking the spring probably about 200 thousandths of an inch. When you close it, you're going to pick up another 50 thousandths of an inch or, or about um, that's what causes them handles when you close that action. That's the resistance you're feeling. Um, you can feel that spring being compressed when you close. We call it cock on close. Um, you know, certain actions were set up 100% cock on close, like an Enfield. Um, in bench rest, F class, certain competitions where you're holding a, uh, a rifle in a position and you don't want to disturb it, um, you know closing that bolt against that resistance can torque the rifle. So I recut the surfaces and convert uh, the action into a 100% cock on open action. So um, it does all of its cocking on the open, and when you close it, it closes just like there wasn't a firing pin in it. It just closes with one finger. Um, The benefit to that is if you're on target, you stay on target. You're not rocking the gun. Um, a lot of venturous shooters and F-class guys, um, once they have it done, they can't go back any other way. Um, the only action really on the market that you can buy that way is some of Jim Borden's actions. He sets them up like that. Um, everyone else, uh, unfortunately, I have to do the uh, modifications to. But... Uh, you know, for high-level competitors, it's the, it's the small things that add up to winning matches and setting records. So so that timing basically is just for the shooter and his ability to keep the gun uh, on the target without moving while he's closing the bolt. Really exactly. doesn't make the gun shoot any better. No, that, that aspect of it doesn't make the gun shoot any better. However... Um, while I am in there, and I also offer ignition blueprinting, you would be amazed at the number of issues. You can, you can spend as much money as you want to spend on a receiver, and it's still a production piece of equipment. We're still making them uh, in, in quantity. So 
Uh, to find firing pin issues, binding issues, drag, um, some of them have basic design faults that causes inconsistent ignition. A lot of that stuff I correct when I'm in there. Um, some of it re- requires a little bit more major, and then I have to uh, obviously do more work to them. But ideally, that firing pin can drop free, no binding, nothing dragging on it, and that, that equates to accuracy without a doubt. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day. Um, it was Ian Kelbley who, who uses a mechanical um, ejector instead of a yeah. plunger ejector like a Remington. And, and his thought, and, and I can see where there might be uh, something to it. If you have a, a plunger-type ejector, you have to leave room in the bolt face for the case to compress that and it kind of pushes the case over to one side as you you know load the round into the chamber which isn't necessarily good for accuracy but um you on your ignition timing you you do something totally different and i was reading a thread on on facebook that you were talking about and and i frankly didn't quite understand what you were getting at so could you get into what you do with the ignition timing a little bit more um sure as far as as far as the work that i'm performing uh to make these things close like they do yes yeah so yeah, I mean you it the the problem with you know, okay, so I do a lot of, of Ian Kelbley's I do a lot of his pandas. I like the panda, but they need to be timed. They have considerable cock on close. So what I basically do is that cocking ramp in the bolt is too shallow to provide all of the, the cocking that you would need. So that's why we all that's why they also cock when you close the bolt to get that total say 250 thousandths firing pin fall that we need um so i basically have to recut that helix in the back of the bolt do some other work to the firing pin and cocking piece and shroud um so that way all of that 250 thousandths is is compressed during the opening stage of the of the, the cycle uh that way when you close it we don't have to increase it by you know putting in cock on and close um and, uh, you know, he had talked about possibly sending some out to me. I think I'm going to do one for him, and, and it may even be something they offer in the future. Um, but it, uh, it, certainly, it certainly helps run the things faster, smoother, and it gives the guys more time to pay attention to conditions or, or whatever else. Um, and in some actions, like, you know, your bats and things like that, they don't have a lot of firing pinfall from the factory. And so when I'm done with them, um, they'll close even better than they did. But I'll bump that firing pin fall up to 240, 250 thousandths, where, uh, you know, we have seen some accuracy improvements there by get, making sure we have enough energy to consistently set primers off. Just out of curiosity, Alex, can you do the same thing by changing firing pin springs? You know, I know there are people out there who who sell different firing pin springs with the intention of, of closing, you know, shortening lock time. Right. Um, you can to a point. You know, fall is basically time. So firing pin fall is the time to accelerate that firing pin. Um, you can put a heavier spring in them, 
normally, you know, it'll make them open harder. Um, and it helps to a point, uh, you know, Jerry Stiller did some testing years ago on this and, uh, um, he's posted some stuff, some of his findings. I've spoke with Jim Borden about it and it's very, very hard to, uh, make up for lack of firing pin fall by adding more spring. Hmm. But you're extending the amount of fall, which is extending the lock time. Uh, Correct. And and you're doing that in order to get better, more consistent ignition. Right. And but it, lock time is lock time. Of, what was that? But lock time is lock time. Yeah, and so you're you're, you're giving up a little lock time to get better, more consistent ignition, which gives you a, a benefit, uh, you know, a net-net benefit, or you wouldn't do it. Yeah, and it's a specialized thing. I mean, it is more along the lines of competition rifles. You know, um, as far as lock time goes, it isn't going to increase lock time over something like a Panda, because we're going to end up where we started with firing pinfall. It would increase it over something like a bat, which has uh, a shorter pinfall to begin with. But I've done some testing on this, um, and I've seen where when you're when you got a gun sitting in sandbags, lock time almost becomes irrelevant. It's you're not holding the gun; um, it's just sitting stationary. So lock time really is far less of a concern in that situation than it would be in say high power, something where you're standing. Uh, what weight are the guns that you're shooting? Uh, light gun class are 17 pounds. Heavy gun is anything over that. And then, you know, our F-open rifles are 22 pounds up to. Yeah, I can understand why you say that, that lock time is insignificant if you're not hanging on to the gun. Because with the guns that heavy, any of the inertia that's created by that spring, you know, tension you know, pushing that uh, firing pin spring, uh, the firing pin forward, isn't enough to really affect a 17 or a 22 pound gun. Where in a 10 and a half pound light varmint gun, yeah, you might be able to see a thousandth or two interference uh, there if you could measure that. You mentioned a couple of times you did some testing and testing, and testing is important. What I want to know is with today's firearms being so accurate, how can you tell what is going to make the difference between 10 and 20 thousandths at, you know, at a thousand yards? Cause that's, you know, basically what the difference between first and second place could be. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's a good question because that's, that's probably the most important thing of all of this. If you don't have good data to form opinions off of, you're kind of lost. And I'm very fortunate. Um, I work with some really good shooters. Good friend of mine, Tom Mousel, won the Nationals last year. And he's got a good spot where he can do some testing. And he's, he's one of those guys that if he calls me and says, that shaved a quarter inch off, you can believe it. Because his data collection, his record keeping is second to none. Um, without someone like that, this would be very difficult to, uh, to come up with some of this stuff and actually know what it did on paper. Um, you know, and a lot of these things, you have to look at trends. You can't just make a, a, a change and go out and say, yes, it's good or bad. A lot of this stuff you have to watch for years to see uh, 
have we made an improvement or have we not? As I promised you before the, the show started, Alex, we've got about four minutes left, and I definitely want to spend some time talking about the stock that you and I have collaborated on. Uh, it, there's a unique concept involved in this stock that you've been the first person in 40 years of making bench rest stocks ever come to me and say, I want the stock to be flexible. Flexible stocks shoot better. Now, you can look at any Facebook page, any post, any accuracy um, forum, and everybody's talking about stiffness makes better shooting. Tell me why you think that having the stock more flexible, and especially you know, in through the receiver area, uh, what's your empirical data that's made you think that? And how are how is this stock that you've designed and that I'm making for you going to change the way things are are being done in at least in thousand yard bench rest? Well, I, I've certainly heard it from other people, and it, it you know it's it's not my own my own idea. Um, I can't take credit for it. A lot of people understand it. A person needs to do a little research and look up what's called positive compensation. Um, it is basically you tune the rifle, so your slow bullet, the barrel's coming up in its harmonics. The slow bullet will leave later at a higher trajectory. The fast bullet will leave sooner at a lower trajectory. At some point downrange, they will converge. Um, that is how you can shoot smaller groups than your extreme spreads will allow on paper. Um, you know, these guys are shooting one and two inches of vertical at 1,000 yards. They're doing it with extreme spreads that says that's not possible. So for positive compensation to work, you have to get the barrel, the muzzle, moving in a vertical plane as soon as possible, as much as possible. Uh, and at least, you know, the end is a spring. So if we preload that spring by putting some flex into it, when that gun starts its rearward motion under recoil, it's going to want to rotate on its center of gravity. That's going to cause the muzzle to come up. Some flex in the forend is a spring. That's going to help the muzzle to come up. So that's where the idea comes from. The I built a stock. Uh, I built a mold. I made a fiberglass stock oh, a few years ago, and it is the most flexible stock I've ever seen. I mean, it is uh, kind of ridiculous. It actually will sit there and bounce after you shoot it. Uh, that was to kind of prove out the concept, and that that rifle has shot with multiple barrels, extremely extremely well. So I haven't found a point where two flexible exists in these specific rifles. But I'm I'm glad that we're doing this project, and uh, obviously the stock is really cool. We've done some really good things. I've begin to understand things that thousand yard bench rest shooters and, and F-class open guys have to deal with that I was really never made aware of before. So now we're compensating for things like uh, the torque pushing the sand to the center of the bag on the front rest and causing a dome. So we're putting rails in the front of this so that it gives you about a, a three eighths of an inch clearance over the that bag so that that you're not affected by that, which makes it easier to hold the gun in the, in the right position and not have as much problem with the torque. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of ideas that have went into that stock, and a lot of people, uh, a lot of guys here have put their input into it. It's certainly not my own 
uh, unique design, and uh, I can't take credit for it. All I can take credit for is getting with you, and you know it was it was just awesome that you decided to uh, to make it for us because it's what we've been wanting for a while. We've had them in wood, but uh, I prefer fiberglass for many reasons, and and quite a few other guys do. So, well, you know, it's been opinion, a pleasure. It's been a pleasure working with you on this, and I'm really excited to see what the results of this are. Um, you know, there's going to be a bunch of stocks out there in the next six months, and, and we'll get to see the empirical data about how they do. Uh, Alex, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, we're going to take a short commercial break. Uh, I want to encourage my listeners to, to stick with us for the next few minutes, and we'll be right back with our next guest. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. For over 40 years, Macmillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gun stock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks. From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, Macmillan stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the Macmillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at Macmillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. You are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show. Hey, thanks for sticking with us through that commercial. I uh, really enjoyed talking to Alex. Unfortunately, it seemed like we only had about 10 minutes to talk. Uh, time sure flies when, you're, when you've when you got a good guest on, having a good time. Uh, really looking forward to our next guest. He's, I've known him since I was about 20 years old. Uh, he's been around the family business, hung out in my uncle's barrel-making shop uh, when I first met him, uh, was friends with my dad, lived uh, not too far from us in the neighborhood. So he's been in, in the Phoenix area and, until he moved to Payson a few years back. But uh, you'll want to listen to this guy. Gary Schneider's the, the premier barrel maker in the country today has been making the Marine Corps barrels for, you know, close to 20 years, I think. Uh, um, such a great guy, a, a real hunter, an engineer, a, a card-carrying in, engineer, not just a guy who says he is one, uh, but really exciting to have him on the show today. Gary, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. You bet, Kelly. Good to be here. Okay, so your website is 
SchneiderRifleBarrels.com, and that's S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R, RifleBarrels.com. Just want to let people know that if they uh, hear you talking on this and they want to find out more about you, that's where they're going to go look you up, and uh, if they want a barrel, they'll contact you. Hopefully, uh, you'll have so many customers coming to you, you won't know what to do with them. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, what part of the country you're from, how you got into guns, maybe some of your early career choices, and, and how you ended up in Phoenix making barrels. Well, okay. I, I guess as a teenager, I was involved with a, a next-door neighbor that was a tool and die maker, and at the time, he was making the tooling for Remington Firearms when Mike Walker of Remington Firearms was developing the button process. And it really piqued my interest in those tools. In fact, I have some of the rejects today, and I've shared them with uh, Jerry Hart, now retired barrel maker, since we were contemporaries. And his father worked with uh, Mike Walker and developed the Hart rifle barrel business. So I've been involved or interested in it since I was a, a young teenager. And uh, ultimately went to school, became an electrical engineer, had a wonderful engineering career, and uh, several other interests. Uh, interest, uh, one of the interests I had was flying. I flew commercially for uh, a number of years in an association with the McMillan family, specifically your uncle. Uh, I really got interested in barrel making, and as a hobby, I, I started making equipment to that end, and um, about that time, uh, your dad Kelly was building rifles for the um, for the Navy, and he needed a source of barrels. And he he and I uh, got together, and we made some barrels for the Navy, and the guns were deployed very successfully. And at the same time, I was flying and doing consulting engineering, but the demand got so so high that I ultimately had to look toward the barrel operation that morphed from uh, uh, an interest into an advocation and uh, never looked back, really. Um, today we have uh, a, a unique type of rifle barrel that I'm pretty proud of, and I mention that because it involves your dad, Kelly, Gail, Gail McMillan. When Gail and I were working together uh, making barrels. I was making barrels for, for his operation. Of course, he was already making stocks. He had started making actions, but he wanted a full McMillan rifle, lock, stock, and barrel. And we got together, and, and your dad, Gail, wanted a, a special type of rifling. And he called it uh, polygon. Well, when you say polygon rifle rifling, you automatically think of the... Uh, the European pistol barrels as such. This was a little bit different. It had some characteristics uh, that were not exactly the, the polygon, but your dad wanted to call it polygon. Good for him. He did. I made the original tooling for those that type of rifling, and your dad uh, used it exclusively. And then when your dad sold that entire operation, I decided I would continue and make a variation of that quote, polygon, end quote, uh, rifle form. I today call it a P5. It's a five-land-and-groove 
um, rifle form that has no sharp corners on it. As a matter of fact, you can look down the barrel, it looks like an old worn out barrel, but be assured that it's dementionally correct. And the two after, there's several attributes associated with that. One is that the barrels are probably 100 feet per second faster. And there's a couple reasons for that. And the other attribute, I believe, and this is a little bit subjective, but my customers have been telling me unsolicited for a number of years now that they follow less. And I believe it. I shoot them myself, so I'm bragging on it. They follow less. And they shoot faster. Shooting faster, you can put a chronograph out in front and measure it. That's not subjective. So we're real, real proud of it. And one of the things that this rifling does not do is it does not challenge the, uh, the mechanical integrity of the bullet as the bullet traverses down the barrel. Conventional rifling will put a rectangular cut in the bullet and actually cut the rifling into the bullet and to make that, that area uh, weaker. And then now we're shooting these big, long, high ballistic coefficient bullets out of the barrels at hundreds of thousands of RPM, and the centrifugal force, force wants to take those bullets apart. And sometimes it does if you, if you scribe uh, lines in it with rifling. The P5 rifling I have does not scribe a line in it. It deforms the, the jacket and lets the bullet uh, twist. So we're pretty proud of that, and I think uh, uh, that the rifle form right now represents like 97% of my sales compared to conventional rifling. So I make, I make both, but I'm particularly proud of the, the P5 rifling. And I, I elected to call it the P5 because out there we have a, a, a rifle form called an R5, which is actually a Boots-Obermeyer uh, cut rifle barrel process that uh, Boots has been working on since uh, the 1960s. It's very popular. It's a real good idea, and it employs a, a pseudo-radius down in the corner of the land and the groove, as does my P5. In addition, my P5 has a, a radius at the top of the land that the R5 does not. So the R5 has been around for a long time, a heck of a good idea, used by the high-power shooters for four years. So the polygon that your dad, Kelly, I now call it the P5. The P actually associates it with the polygon. I hated to dump that. But the 5 at the end associates it with the R5. So now the shooters have got choices, and they understand that there's a P5 out there and there's an R5 out there, and actually the uh, the R5 is very very interesting. It, it turns out that in the 1930s, when Germany was making small arms in anticipation of World War II, they had to make lots of rifle barrels. And the process at the time was a cut rifle barrel where a, a, a little tooth, like a beaver's tooth, was dragged down through the barrel and indexed and scraped and scraped and scraped, and it uh, cut in the groove in the barrel. So it was an iterative process with a, a little tool, a single-point tool that, that actually wore down. Now, a tool with a square corner on it, and you're envisioning it's a little beaver's tooth cutting the groove in there, it's got two little square corners on it. Well, those square corners wore faster than the, the rest of the tool. So it imported, imparted a radius down on the bottom of the land in the groove. 
Well, the, the barrel makers in Germany decided to shut the machines down when that happened. Well, the production managers, they didn't particularly like that because the barrels weren't coming out the other end. Now, German engineering wrote two papers on this during the 1930s, and I got both those papers and I read them, and they evaluated the, the, uh, the groove in the bottom as opposed to a sharp corner in the bottom, and lo and behold, the uh, barrels that had the, uh, the worn tooling cut or that radius down the land of the groove were faster. They were like 11 meters per second on average faster. And at the time, they had their chronographs were uh, mass displacement chronographs where you solve for velocity from the kinetic energy imparted onto a, a piece of steel plate. And it got displaced. You, you, you solved the equation one-half mv squared backwards and got your velocity. And it's surprisingly accurate compared to the chronographs we have today. And I actually duplicated that by making... Uh, a rifle form with that groove in the bottom. And I just now, 25 years, 20 years later, I put the radius at the top of the uh, land also to uh, treat the bullet a little bit better. So got I'm, sure, of- I'm sure that that's not the first time in history that what actually was a mistake to begin with came out to, to be uh, better than the normal and it became the standard. Gary, I want to go back to 1984. Uh, you you kind of skipped over from when uh, you were hanging around my uncle's shop to the point where my dad needed some barrels for a Navy contract. Okay. Uh, and, in, in 1984, Pat sold his rifle barrel company, and at the time, it wasn't that that my dad didn't think that the new owner could make good barrels, but he couldn't guarantee that he could because it was a brand new transition. Uh, you just never know, and I know that during 1985, um, being without McMillan barrels for a little while, you know, from his brother. Um, he was building some rifles and, and wanted to depend on that accuracy. And I know you were good friends with my uncle. Uh, I think your your going into the rifle business was even blessed by Pat uh, at the time because he was no longer in the rifle business. Is that correct? Oh, you're abs- you're absolutely correct. And at that time, during that transition time, there, Kelly, I was a known entity, and I was friends with your dad. And he could reach out and touch me. We could we could talk and discuss, and we had mutual interest. I was interested in in the barrels at the time, and he he needed them, and he needed a good barrel. But he had he had to have some element of control or visibility, and there I was. It was a natural thing to happen. And that was awesome. I think for you, it gave you a a positive uh, contract that gave you a certain number of of rifles. And, you know, I think he made 200 of those rifles before that whole contract was over, which was not an insignificant number in a guy's just burgeoning business. So uh, I think that was really good for you. It was good for him because he got the great barrels and, uh, you know, probably built a stronger relationship with you, which is why when you know when, when it came time to for him to make his own barrels, you were happy to help him with the project. Oh, ab- absolutely, absolutely. It was uh, just something that happened. Uh, it happened real smoothly. And uh, uh, well, I'd known your your dad by the way when he started making the fiberglass stocks in his uh, his garage in North Phoenix. Before he even transitioned to, uh, you know, a, a nice big shop, 
Uh, yeah, was, well, you know, that nice big it. shop was a garage. Uh, you know, we moved from the dining room table to yeah. the 8 by 12 foot um, storage shed at the end of the carport. Heck, yeah. we'd been in business for two years before he even built the, the carport into a garage so we'd actually have a shop. So, yeah, he, he was growing right along with the business. And, uh, you know, I remember those times I got to work in the 8 by 12 foot storage shed. I remember he used to tell me, you know, I'd make them with we'd bust the molds out, clean all the flash off of them, blow them, blow them off with compressed air. They'd, they'd go against the back wall and then fall down underneath the table. And <laughs> it was so small, I couldn't get a broom under there. It was hard to clean, but he'd come in every now and then and say, Kelly, you're going to have to clean that stuff out before you hit your head on the ceiling. <laughs> well, I got some stories. I'm not sure I should relate over the over the air here right now. But yeah, we'll save that for the next time you come. Save it for another time, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think one of the one of the biggest things that happened with uh, Schneider uh, rifle barrels and you personally was getting introduced to the Marine Corps and being able to convince them that and you know a lot of people don't know the history of it. They asked originally when they built the the program back in '74. Uh, they asked Pat if he wanted to make the barrels. Pat was a one man shop and just didn't really want to ha- be out of control of how hard he worked. So he turned it down. And um, Atkin- they gave the first contract to Atkinson. I don't really know how many barrels that was, uh, but Bill Atkinson up, up in Prescott made them. I think that that he was kind of the the didn't uh, um, HS Precision start out? Yeah, it was Bill Atkinson and Paul Marquardt together. Yeah, right. And they made, if I'm, I think I'm correct on this, 600, 600 uh, barrels for the uh, for the Marine Corps. Now, at the same time, there was heart barrels put in there too. There was a, a, a splash of uh, heart barrels. So the exact number is lost forever. So, what year was it when you actually made your first pitch to the Marine Corps? Oh, golly. You know, uh, when your dad and Dick Davis designed the M40A3 stock, when they were going to transition to the A3, I was supplying barrels to the Marine Corps, replacement barrels for the A1. Mm-hmm. And then they did an evaluation for, for several barrel makers for the A3 contract. We each, each barrel maker supplied three barrels and built three guns. Uh, the Marine Corps built three guns and took them out to the range and started shooting them. And the requirement at the time is the barrel had to last 3,000 rounds. And this is kind of interesting. And I anticipated that they needed a round count. So I did something to the Marine Corps barrels to make them uh, pretty durable. In the evaluation, there was only one other barrel maker that had one of his his three barrels make it to 3,000 rounds. My barrels, all three of them made it to 3,000 rounds. They had made the decision at that point, unbeknownst to me, what they were going, going to go with. They continued the testing, 5,000 rounds. All three barrels still were right in there, 5,000 rounds. They decided to go to 7,500 rounds. They started off with three rifles. They dropped one rifle and broke the scope. So they decided to continue the other two rifles on to the 7,500 rounds. They did that, no problem. 
They continued both rifles to 10,000 rounds. They're starting to get tired of shooting them. They just continued to shoot one round, excuse me, one rifle to 14,591 rounds, and they gave up. It shot an inch and seven-eighths at 300 meters. That's pretty good for a 14,591 round. Your dad and I and Dick Davis went to Quantico just shortly after that evaluation um, ended. And in a conference, they gave your dad a contract for the uh, A3 stocks, and we were all pretty happy about that. And then from behind the desk, they reached and they handed me a barrel. Well, it was the barrel of 14,591 rounds to it and said, here's a contract if you want to sign it. So your dad and I, that was a pretty pretty big deal when, uh, that, that day in the, at the Quantico Marine Base. I can remember when you came back, it was like you guys had really, you know, solidified your bond there. It was almost like, geez, two brothers that accomplished something, you know, nobody else had. Um, oh, absolutely. And we were so excited for you, too. And, and you've been the only barrel maker for the Marine Corps since then. That's correct. Uh, all the barrels on the M40A3, A4, A5 are mine, and now the M40A6 is also mine. So all the M40 barrels are, are my barrels. We're pretty proud of that. And I've reviewed some of the log books of the, uh, from the deployed rifles, and some of these rifles, a good number of them, are coming back between seven and 10,000 rounds. And I asked the, uh, the general here oh, about three years ago, and I said, are you happy? And he says, absolutely, we're pleased with the performance of these, these barrels. He said a little bit different terms, but that's what he, he in essence, uh, he said. So it was a, a good ploy to, well, what's really happened is that's considered a sniper rifle. Well... When it was actually deployed, it's a two-man team, two-man weapon system team, your stocks, Remington Action, my barrel, that rifle has morphed from a, a sniper rifle into an offensive and defensive weapon. That's why the round counts are so high. And that was something that was not really anticipated in the, in the early or the mid-'90s, but that's what really happened. So the weapon system fit for the mission. You know, I think that what happened with that and why that has become is because the way we're fighting wars now uh, in urban areas has changed the whole way that snipers are deployed. And sure, if you saw the movie American Sniper, you saw how um, Chris Kyle was on Overwatch. Yeah, but, you know, they're involved in almost every battle, every skirmish. And so uh, rather than going out and crawling around for four days and waiting to get one shot for one kill, now they're part of each of the battles, and I think that's why those numbers went up so much. Absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. And the, the success of the weapon system is, is just phenomenal. The, uh, the M40A6 now, they have uh, gone to a, a chassis-style stock. Now that is something we, I'd like to talk to you about uh, in the future, maybe. There's uh, some some big differences that are that are glowing, and I know the consensus from uh, most of the shooters that I talk to, the fiberglass stock is still the the one you use for accuracy assignments. 
You know, I just I just was back there last year and spoke to him about it. And yeah, I'm disappointed that they opted away from the McMillan and into the chassis. But uh, I think that they'll be back. But I have no one to blame but myself. For almost 40 years, we've told everybody that if you want your gun to shoot absolutely as good, as accurately as as possible, you need to glass bed it. What oh, yeah. we didn't tell them was that. It shoots extremely well without betting them. So the Marine Corps never even had a concept that if they just bought our stocks, put them on their guns, that their guns would still be, you know, five-eighths, half-inch, five-eighths um, inch guns. They, they just assumed that they had to. And one of the things that they bought chassis for, they've told me, everybody's talked about it, we want to be able to change stocks in the field. If a stock goes down, gets broke or something, we want to be able to take one off, put it on without returning it to the armory. Right now, the guys in the fields are not allowed to take their actions out of the gun in the field. Oh, boy, they have to be in, returned to the armory. I'd like to talk to you on that same subject for about a half hour exclusively because there's so much information. It even goes into breaking a rifle system in. Uh, wow. Unfortunately, Gary, we've only got three minutes left, and I warned you this was going to happen. Yeah, I understand. But I, I want to question I want to ask the question, are, are the Marine Corps barrels polygon barrels? Uh, no, they're not. <clears throat> the, uh, and the reason they're not is... Um, the, the uh, uh, the graybeards uh, are looking at it and saying, "Well, if the system works, why change it?" And I say, "Well, why change from a fiberglass stock?" And they say, "Well, we can't afford all those changes at once." <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah and, but it's the system. But yeah. however, the, the Marine Corps does have my P5 barrels in 30 caliber. And 338. They've had them for years, and they've uh, they use them, but it's not on the M40. So your barrels last longer than most. Uh, your R5 barrels uh, shoot about 100 feet per second faster. One thing yeah, that you didn't the, touch uh, on that I know that yeah P5 shoot faster, P5. not the R5. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, uh, I swore I was not going to do that. You've chewed me out for doing that once before. I promised I'd never <laughs> let it happen again. The P5, you should have made it the Schneider 5. I'd never get that wrong. Uh, anyway, they shoot about 100 feet per second faster. And one thing, you, you did talk about them cleaning easier, but, you know, the throats don't wear out as fast because there's not as many sharp angles for, you know, to get burned out. So um, even in the super critical accurate um, rifles, uh, they last longer. I can make an argument for that, Kelly. Yes, I can. But it's okay. very subjective and it's hard to prove. But if you see the chambering reamer on a, a brand new chambered reamer, excuse me, barrel, there's a marked difference between a rectangular land and the, the P5 land. And you can see, you can make a case to say, well, this is going to wear slower from uh, gas erosion than the, uh, the rectangular. We can go into detail with that, but I can make a case for it. That's good. And that's a good place for us to end it, Gary. I I'm sorry we're out of time. Remember, everyone, if you want to get a hold of uh, Gary Schneider and order a barrel, it's SchneiderRifleBarrels.com. Hey, Gary, thanks for being on the show. You've been a good friend of mine and, and a friend of the family for a long time. Thanks for talking about my dad. I really appreciate that. Um, I want to have you back on the show when we got more time. Okay, Kelly, that's a deal. It's been a pleasure.
I appreciate it. And I want to thank all of our listeners for sticking with us through this hour. It's been terrific. Uh, both guests were great. Uh, I know that uh, the, the weekend here, the weather's going to be awesome. I'm going to be outside. I'm traveling up to Colorado Springs to uh, pay homage and tribute to Lonis Wigger, maybe one of the best American shooters of all time uh, the, tonight at a benefit for him. So I'm really excited about that. Everybody come back uh, and listen to us next week. We'll have another great show and look forward to seeing you next Friday. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week.